The text for Pastor John's sermon this morning is two powerful verses from Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, 19 and 20. Listen to the word of God. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It is really fitting that we come to the end of this great unit in the book of Romans on sin and guilt the Sunday before Good Friday. Because Good Friday is when Jesus died for our sins. Good Friday means that Jesus came into the world to die for sinners. And we stand at the end of this Tremendous section on our guilt and our sin that stretched from Romans 1.18 to 3.20. Ready to make a turn now into a long season of gospel reveling in the next chapters of Romans. And it's good that we're making the turn here in Holy Week. I said last week we were centimeters away from it, and now we are, in my Bible, millimeters away from it in verses 21 and 22. And so I pray for you and I exhort you on this last Sunday of sin and guilt to make it a great gospel preparation in your life for the best news in all the world. That there is a righteousness that is not our own righteousness, it's not of our making, it's not of our striving. It is the righteousness of God to be received, to be received by faith, and it's the only way we will be accepted with God and have eternal life. But if we don't understand sin, and if we don't understand law, and if we don't understand justification, and if we don't understand the stopping of the mouths of the whole world, we will not understand the gospel, and it will not be precious to us as it ought to be. And so let whatever feels weighty and heavy and negative in a sermon on sin and guilt be for you a double preparation for dancing, that you are not just a sinner, but a saved and justified sinner by grace alone. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, the greatest thing in the world is to be saved. The greatest thing in the world is to have passed from death into life. And hear the words, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that the judge of all the universe, as he does right by his 
unimpeachable and impeccable standards will with all justice and all grace welcome us into his ever joyful presence forever and ever because of what was done on Good Friday. Oh God, I plead with you that what I do to finish this colossal unit on sin and guilt this morning would only serve to save sinners and to strengthen the saints in their salvation that they might love the gospel, that they might love Good Friday, that they might revel in the sweat and trembling and sword clashing of Gethsemane, and that they might dance over Saturday and Sunday and Pentecost. Oh Lord God, let this message have that liberating effect, I pray. Even for those in this room who right now hear this as a foreign language because they are not yet born of God. Let this be the hour, Holy Spirit, do it, where you blow where you will. And suddenly, an unbeliever says, Yes, this is the answer to all my quest. This is my hope and my life. Christ is real and Christ is mine. Perform that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we arrived almost at the end of it. In verse 9 of chapter 3, there are these several summary statements. It's as though Paul would like to sum this up and move on, but he keeps thinking there's just a little more I've got to say about this so that when it comes, it will really come. So he arrived at verse 9 and he said, Are we any better, we Jews, than the Gentiles, than the Greeks? And the answer is no, we're not. I've already assigned everybody, Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That's verse 9, and then he supports it in a, a unit of Scripture with six Old Testament quotations from the Psalms and Isaiah to the effect there is none righteous, no, not one. And therefore, if you think you can be justified by producing righteousness on your own, the Bible will stand as a witness against you someday, as will this half hour that we have spent together. Now, he comes to verses 19 and 20 and makes his last summary statement. And these verses are filled up with implications. These are big verses, and Christianity is a big religion. Hesitate to use the word religion, but it's big. It's not a tribal religion. It's not an ethnic religion. It doesn't just address a few people who are of a certain class or a certain ethnic group or a certain socioeconomic level or a certain tradition of religiosity. It, it addresses a group for the world. You see that in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that 
Every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Christianity, even when it is focused in preaching on the Jews, say, or on the church, is for the nations. And there's a message in every message to the church for the nations. There's a message in every word of the law to the Jews for the nations. And here the word is, your mouths are going to be stopped someday. Now, there are implications in this. Let me give you five. I'll mention them now and come back to them if I have time at the end. Number one, everybody in the whole world is guilty before God. No exceptions. Guilty before God. Every one of us. Number two, no mouth anywhere in the world. Primitive tribe, university lecture hall is going to be able to lift an, a legitimate objection against God at the judgment day. Not one. The mouths will be stopped. Implication number three, the mouths of those who now raise objections, deride God, they will one day be silenced. Objection or implication number four, therefore do not fear the voice of man. His railing will cease. Fear God. And fifthly and finally, your heart and my heart also is sinful, and our mouths will be stopped. And therefore, while there is time, go to verse 21 and 22, and let's read it and believe it. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. What, to damn? To condemn? No. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction. So while there is time, implication number five, receive the gift of righteousness by faith in the free giver, God Almighty, through his Son Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Now, that's what we want to look at in a few minutes, those five implications. But I need to reconstruct with you the argument of verses 19 to 20. There are four steps in this argument. Two in verse 19 and two in verse 20. Let me give you the steps in the order in which Paul gave them, and then we'll open them in reverse order. Step one, verse 19 at the beginning. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So the first point in this argument is the law is focused on the Jews. They're the ones who have the oracles of God. Chapter three, verse one to them was given the oracles of God. Step two in the argument, second half of verse 19. So that is the effect, the result, the purpose, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. So how does that work? We'll come back to figure that out. How does the address to the Jews stop every mouth? Step three in the argument. All the mouths are going to be stopped because, verse 20, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. 
How does that work? Why is that an argument for every mouth being stopped because the Jews were addressed by the law? Last step in the argument. The law will not justify anyone because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, how does that work? How does the truth or the knowledge of sin being revealed by the law show that no one is justified by the law, which in turn shows that every mouth will be stopped because God addressed Israel with the law. This is Paul at his most ordinary. So let's go backwards now and see if we can follow this train of thought in reverse from foundations to pinnacles. So we'll start with step four at the end of verse 20. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What does that mean? Well, on the face of it, if I were just reading that through and didn't think about anything else Paul said, I might think, well, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. If I read the law, I'll know what sin is. So thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, don't commit adultery, don't covet. Now I know what sin is. I've learned, I know sin because of the law. Won't work. I don't think that's what the text means. And the reason is because it just doesn't make the argument work. Try it. Verse 19 or verse 20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight because the law teaches thou shalt not kill. Does that work? You know that the law can't justify people. Because it teaches what the law or what sin is. It doesn't work for me. To know what, to know what sin is does not show me that I can't, by the works of the law, get myself justified. It just doesn't work. It doesn't hang together. I'm inclined then to look harder to see, well, what does this 20 mean? Now, the best way to answer a question like that is to look in Paul, not in your own brain, for some really close usage of the law making sin known. And I'll just take you to the closest analogy I know of. Let's go to chapter 7. Let you see what I see and you can form your judgment here about whether this is what the text means. Romans 7 Let's start at verse 7 and read two verses. What then shall we say? Is the law sin? Now, the reason that question arises is because of the problem that the law seems to stir up so much mess in people's lives, including Paul's. And his answer is no. May it never be. The law is not sin. In fact, elsewhere he says it's just, it's holy, it's good, it's spiritual. Verse 12, verse 14. Of this chapter. May it never be. On the contrary, I would have not known, NASB, come to know. I would not have known sin except through the law. That's what verse 20 means. 
I came to know sin through the law. But what does that mean? Next verse brings it out. Or keep reading in verse 7. For I, I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And when it's dead, you don't know it's there. You don't know its power. You don't know its nature. You don't know its prevalency. You don't know it until through the law you get to know it. So that when the law comes to an unregenerate, fleshly, rebellious heart, get out of my life. Don't tell me what to do. The law brings out not humility and not faith. It brings out sin and makes it known. The mind of the flesh, Paul says in chapter 8, verse 7, the mind of the flesh does not submit to God's law. Neither can it. For the mind of the flesh is hostile to God and cannot submit or please God, cannot submit to God or please God. So when the law meets that kind of mind, it doesn't justify and it doesn't awaken faith. It produces rebellion and makes sin manifest. It increases the trespass. Chapter 5, verse 20. You remember a couple of weeks ago, I had you draw the God heart word. And I had you put an equation in the margin. Remember what one of those was? Law minus spirit equals letter that kills. That's what the law can do. It can make sin known and deadly. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin because it brings out the dormancy of it. I thought of this analogy. Um, suppose one of my teenage boys goes to get the mail in the mailbox on the porch and brings it in. Shuffles through it quickly to see if there's anything for him. Puts it on the kitchen table. Starts to walk away. No evil there, right? Nothing evil here. No, nothing going on in the heart that's bad here, is there? And then suddenly, he notices written at the top of a postcard for parents only. Now what happens? The law has just arrived. Thou shalt not read this. And what happens? Desire. Wasn't there before. Didn't want to read that postcard. Didn't care. But now, don't read it. I want to read this. Whether he reads it or not, that's bad. That's bad. That's what the law does. 
according to Romans 7, verses 7 and 8. It stirred in Paul all kinds of stuff that he didn't know was there. And so it does with us. You want to know if somebody's pretty good, pretty good people like we talked about last week? Just tell them not to do something they want to do in the name of God Almighty and see what happens. So step four at the bottom of this argument is the law doesn't awaken faith. The law doesn't justify. The law doesn't produce humility. The law meets a carnal, unregenerate heart and reveals the dormancy of sin, brings it to life, multiplies it, and shows its true character. And now, up a step. First half of verse 20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight because... What? Well, because the law can't do that. The law, when it bumps up against real life, ordinary, carnal, unregenerate, fleshly human people, has no power to justify. That's the connection between verse 20b the second half of the verse, and 20a. The law only brings out sin. It doesn't bring out righteousness. It brings out rebellion. It doesn't bring out faith. And therefore, it justifies nobody. Efforts to respond to that law called works of the law will never justify you. Ever. Why is the law so powerless and weak? Turn with me to Romans 8. I've shown you this at least once before, and I'll no doubt go there again and again and again, because texts don't get much more important than Romans 8. And within Romans 8, it's hard to say what verse is not the most important, because they are all so informative of the meaning of other texts in Romans. Now, Romans 8, 3 says, what the law could not do, and that's what we're concerned about here. Works of the law don't justify anybody. The law seems so powerless to help me do what I need to do. Why? What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. There's the reason. It's not a problem with the content of the law. It's a problem with the content of John Piper's heart that makes the law powerless in my life. Weak as it was through the flesh, well, what did God do? Establish a new law? Take us all back to the Ten Commandments? He didn't. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh. My condemnation landed on Jesus. And that's the key to life. That's what this week is all about, is it not? 
But at least we understand a little better now why the law can only do this negative work. It comes and it condemns. It's letter. It kills. The spirit gives life. The letter kills. Why does it kill? Why is this law so powerless? Why is it only letter in my life? Answer, my flesh. My rebellion. That's what flesh means for Paul. That rebellious, unregenerate me. Or after conversion, that side of me that tries to get the upper hand in war against the spirit. And where that takes over, the law kills. Second Corinthians 3, 6, and so on. So the summary of the, of the two bottom levels of the argument, verse 20, are the works of the law cannot justify anybody because the law bumping up against the flesh Kills by revealing how sinful I am. It doesn't justify. It doesn't awaken faith. It doesn't awaken humility. It doesn't bring about anything I need to get saved. Which is faith in God's grace. That comes another way. Now, last question. How do these two points in verse 20 support... The argument in verse 19 says, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world be held accountable or guilty, literally, before God. Why does what the law says to Jews make every Gentile mouth shut? Answer, because the works of the law cannot justify, because they reveal only sin. How does that work? I think it goes like this. The Jews heard this law. That's what the first half of verse 19 says. This law is addressed to Jews. They heard this. They heard it for thousands of years, 2,000 years. What was its effect in their lives? Judgment. Over and over again. Judgment. Because it couldn't justify them. Why couldn't it justify them? Because it was weak through their flesh. Because they pursued it as though it were by works and not by faith. And therefore, the people who had the greatest advantages spiritually only experienced those advantages unto judgment. And if the people who had the most advantages were brought into judgment by all of that law and all of those advantages, what right or thought or legitimacy or likelihood that any other people group without those advantages would stand just before God. There is no likelihood that the dormancy of sin that is out there in all the world would meet this law any other way than it was met with in the people who had the greatest advantages. 
So it's an argument from how great are the advantages of Israel to how few are the advantages of the world. And if those who had all the advantages, all the prophets, all the law, all the Psalms, all of the history of the mighty works of God, if they are so wicked, so rebellious, so resistant to God's revelation that they turn it into works and thus bring judgment upon themselves, why should we Americans think we would do anything different, which in fact we don't? And that's the end of the argument and the end of the unit. And so let me go back to the implications. Five of them. Number one, everybody that you know is guilty before God. You are guilty. I am guilty. The bus driver is guilty. Your neighbor is guilty before God. The clerk at the store is guilty before God. Your professor is guilty before God. Your wife, your husband, your children are all guilty before God. And this should sober us about ourselves and about everybody else. This fact is huge. This fact is not on any curriculum of any public school, and it is more important than everything else that they teach put together. And therefore, as the pillar and bulwark of the truth, I urge you, hold fast to this great truth. Everybody is guilty and accountable before God. I was reading in John Stott on this text a few weeks ago, and I... I can't remember the exact quote, but I'll paraphrase it for you as I remember it. He said, there never has been a profound thinker concerning the nature of the human condition and the human race who has believed that man is good. So if you want to be superficial... Believe that human nature is good. If you want to skim over the surface of things, if you just want to be a little twinkle, twinkle, little star in this world, instead of a mighty sun of light, then believe that all's okay. And if we just educate enough, or if we just do enough circumstantial adjustment in family systems, that human beings will turn out real well. I said last week, and I believe it with all my heart, there's not a person in this room who, when you get angry, would not kill if all the restraints of common grace were removed from you. We are wicked people. Our our hearts are depraved and corrupt beyond imagination. And apart from the grace of God, there is no remedy. Second implication No mouth anywhere in the world, from the primitive tribe to the lecture hall of the university, will in the last day at the judgment be able to raise an objection legitimately against God and his justice. This is perhaps the second most important point in the unit from 118 to 320. The most important point, I'm a guilty man and my nature is corrupt and I am a person of the flesh, and if Almighty God in His sovereign grace does not rescue me and heal me and remedy my life, I am going to suffer forever, cut off from Him in hell. That's the main point. But there is a second point here, 
It's repeated three times and three lesson books are given in this unit for why we have no excuse and our mouths are shut before God. Let me show you the three lesson books by way of review. Chapter 1, verse 20, the book of nature. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. In other words, their mouth will be stopped. Anybody who can see nature, their mouth will be stopped at the judgment day. No criticism of God, for he will judge us according to the measure of the light that we have. And all the light that we have, we subdue and suppress in our wickedness. And no one is righteous. No, not one. No matter how many lesson books there are apart from the gospel and the sovereign grace of God by the Holy Spirit. Lesson book number two is the conscience in chapter two, verse 15. They they know the work of the law written on their hearts. It's not just written in the sky and the galaxies and the trees and the molecules and the atom. It's written right across your own conscience their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. And therefore we will be without excuse and our mouths will be shut because we have a lesson book of nature and we have a lesson book of the conscience. And the third lesson book is Israel. Chapter 3, verse 19. Whatever the law says, it speaks to the people of Israel, those who are under the law, and the whole history of Israel exists for one main purpose, that every mouth might be stopped and all the world accountable before God. So there are three great lesson books that shut the mouths of all the nations. Nature, conscience, and the history of the Jewish people. And God will put every one of those before us at the judgment day if we have never heard the gospel. And we will be guilty and accountable to him. That's implication number two. Implication number three. The mouths today, not at the judgment day, but today that are raising objections against God will be silenced. Every mouth will be stopped. Oh, how great are the boasts of tiny men these days. Where is your God, they say, but only for a season. And then they perish and they meet him and their mouth is silent. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 17. The pride of man will be humbled in that day. And the loftiness of men will be abased and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And so I exhort you with the words of First Peter 5, I think it's verse 7. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that in due season, when he alone is exalted, you will be in him. Implication number four. Therefore, do not fear the voice of a man. Oh, how prone we little Christians are to fear men. 
the rattling of swords and tanks and bombers and Y2K jugs. And... Oh, that God would give us all a radically God-saturated way of looking at the world. Oh, that we would look every intimidating derision of God in the face and with all calmness and with some measure of compassion say, you will be silenced. Which leads me to the last point, the gospel point. For you and for that person, you too will be silenced. So let us put our hands on our mouths now. When we are prone to object against God or find fault with God, let us put our hands on our mouths now because we will put our hands on our mouths at the last day. And in our silence, let us go to the gospel. And let us say, all right, if the works of the law cannot justify me, then I will turn away from the law. And I will turn away from my works, and I will look to God's grace, and I will listen, and I will hear him say, now look at verse 21 with me again, and here's where we're going to end. Chapter 3, verse 21. But now, this great turning point, this great but now, but now, apart from the law. So when he, when he undertakes to save, he doesn't send us back to the Ten Commandments first. That's weak through the flesh. Instead, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. He undertakes to do something righteous. He undertakes to manifest a righteousness. My righteousness has failed. There is nothing coming out of John Piper that's righteous. There is no hope for me getting by at the judgment or being accepted on the basis of my righteousness. Therefore, my only hope is that now God will step forward and do something in regard to righteousness. And what he does is reveal his own in the world. How, how and for whom and for what and how can I have it? Even the righteousness of God. Here's the precious phrase. My friends, through faith in Jesus Christ. And then, as though somebody might say, yes, but not me, he adds, for all. Please hear the word all. Please hear the word all. Not one denomination, not one class, not one Race, not one ethnic subgroup or culture, not one intellectual strata, not one economic strata, not one side in the Serbian-Albanian conflict, but all who believe will have the righteousness of God. That's good news. That's really good news. So we're finished. 26 weeks, I think. 26 sermons on sin. 
and the glory of God and our falling short and our desperate condition. And we're ready to move and make the shift. And what a glorious thing that the Lord did it to end on Palm Sunday with Gethsemane coming and Good Friday coming and Easter coming. So embrace the truth of your own condition. Don't run from it. Don't whitewash it. Just embrace it. And then lay it at the cross this Thursday, this Friday, and look into the face of a God who at the cost of his own son and his life put forth a righteousness that you may have this morning by faith, apart from works of the law. Let's pray. God, it's hard for me to believe that anybody could sit here and not believe this and go out lost. It's so hard to believe. And so I, I pray that it not be believable right now. And I pray you get your arms around this congregation. And on this holy week, as we move into it, everybody that walked in here unbelieving, trying to measure up with their own righteousness would now lay it down and say, Oh God, I never knew I could have a righteousness that is not my own. A righteousness that is by faith in Jesus Christ. But now I see that that's my only hope. And I receive your gift of righteousness. Now I think I have an idea what justification by faith is. I pray that many of you will make that confession. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Lord, perform it. Let's stand for a benediction. Now may the Lord not only uh, make you to know your sin, we need to know our sin. May the Lord do that for you. But may he make you know his righteousness and not as a damning, condemning righteousness, but as a gift, as a gift. And may he then bring out of your heart faith that rests in him alone. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.